You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing? Ah, I'm doing great. I've got so much to talk to you about tonight. Normally I try to limit myself, but I don't care. So I'm just going to go with all of them. First, I know you to be... Very much a Jeopardy fan. What's your take on uh, going from two hosts to one host? I think it was an inevitability. I think Mayim Bialik has a career outside of Jeopardy. Although this whole thing has been really weird. Yeah. Especially as her sitcom was canceled. So it's not like she had a lot going on elsewhere. But... I think sooner or later, it was going to come down to just Ken Jennings hosting. I just am surprised at the weird way it has happened. Especially with what appears to be hurt feelings on her side. Yeah. And, you know, her saying that they told her, them trying to make it sound like it was either mutual or her decision... It's strange. Yeah. And and look, I just read third hand accounts, but she didn't seem to be in love with Jeopardy to begin with. She was her best hosting self hosting celebrity Jeopardy. The the give or take, the back and forth with celebrities felt the stakes of, yeah, it felt or lack thereof. Yeah. Felt a little more organic for her. Listen, during that whole rotating hosts period, she was well above the bottom tier of those rotating hosts. Dr. Oz? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I flat out skipped those two weeks. Good man. But I mean, Aren't you glad that he's gone away? It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, don't have a show anymore, not in the Senate. It's just great times. I mean, I always figured it would be Ken Jennings who would wind up as the host. He was the, the heir apparent. He was going to be the temporary host when Alex Trebek was going in for his last round of chemo and such before he passed away. He passed right when Ken Jennings was about to step into his shoes temporarily. So it always felt like sooner or later it was going to be Ken Jennings. I can never get over that the producer, Michael, or whatever his name was. I can't even remember his name. I want to feel it was Mike Richards, but that doesn't seem right. No, th that is right. Because it was like, wait, Michael Richards? Like, yeah. But yeah, no. I don't know where in the world it, he thought he should be the host of Jeopardy. He, he Dick Cheney'd himself. Yeah. But it, it always felt like it was going to come around and come down to Ken Jennings. No matter what the vocal contingent of LeVar Burton people, I love LeVar Burton. I'm sure you love LeVar Burton. Great guy. Great guy. Wonderful storyteller. His LeVar Burton Reads podcast, excellent. 
but I think he is more of more of an actor, more of a storyteller. I don't think Jeopardy was what he was suited for. I would watch a talk show hosted by LeVar Burton in a heartbeat. Oh, that would be good. But this kind of hosting requires a certain rhythm, a certain something that I don't think is necessarily in LeVar's wheelhouse. He might have gotten it over time, but you needed so much of so much less of that with Ken Jennings. And it's a, it's a difficult job because to me, you have to have two big things going for you. First, you have to be good on television. And second, you have to cultivate a, a personality, uh, uh, that of being an intellectual. And to me, that's where Bialik just did not pass at all. Because she had that stink from Big Bang Theory, and she had the stink from her anti-vax stuff. The the Jeopardy is for the intellectuals, right? It's where we can go. It's like it's our it's our baseball, even though I like baseball too, uh, and football. Like that's that's the trivia sport, and you have to have somebody who feels like they belong in that arena. And to me, she never did. And I, I know there's a vocal contingent of misogynistic people out there i i'm trying to disclaim all of that but she just it never felt right to me and so uh i'm i'm glad for my boy because uh, I, I remember all those years ago watching that streak uh that prime time viewing appointment good for him and you know what listen Miami out she does have her doctorate she is a neuroscientist she is an actor but just because your one thing doesn't necessarily translate over to the other yeah and she never felt as comfortable in that space as ken jennings did if you know your jeopardy history it always felt like alex was going to hand the baton to ken jennings and that is a big plus in his column it's hard to beat that right and i i think maybe that's how richard's claim that job for himself was like who else was it gonna be other than ken jennings like who was just right there and who already didn't have like a higher profile job or more of a mainstream actor type anderson cooper would have been interesting right but he's that man's busy all right so that's jeopardy done and accounted for second arcade game of the week one of the one of the best things about having a multi-cade with thousands of games on it, if I'm just fucking around on the internet and I come across like some obscure arcade game, I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Chances are I've got it on the machine. And I'm, I have fallen in love with this one from 1981, Namco, called Bosconian. It is a fighter, right? You are fixed in the middle of the screen. And so it's a, it's a little bit like Asteroids. But you are fighting enemy ships and you're fighting these series of enemy bases that are like the Death Star in like you have to wait until their uh, their inner core is exposed. So you got to maneuver the joystick and into the perfect right position and shoot it, you know, when the when the core is open and it's easy to play, impossible to master. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Bosconian for all of you who uh, uh, are out there and interested. Final point. Looking back, this is the our final recording of, of 2023. Happy New Year as you're listening to this uh, for the 4th of July. 
what do you think you're going to remember most from 2023? Okay, I need to think because my first instinct is a downer. So I don't want to I don't want to bring the the mood down right at the beginning of the recording. Oh, I think I know what yours is going to be. Oh, I want to I want to think of something that isn't that. Okay, so I'll I'll share mine. And look, this is true in line with my personality. As somebody described me recently, and I took this as as a compliment of the highest order. You're not a yes guy. You're a fuck you guy. And so I'm like, yeah, that's I like that. Uh, and so to me, the my fuck you spirit of 2023 has got to be the Titanic album as a as a lasting memory, as a cultural moment of tech bro hubris. And, and look, I'm absolutely going to say like the loss of life in any situation is tragic. But that guy, from all that we learned, right, of, of cutting corners and being so sure of himself uh, just represents so much of just what has gone wrong with the internet and creators of the modern era. So uh, to me, that's going to sum up this year. That's a good one because that is really just such a telling moment. We really do exist in a world where people are just such dumbasses <laughs> and sort of revel in their yeah, dumbassery absolutely the cyber truck is a monument to reveling in your dumbassery i'm going to try to to kind of keep with what is in what what the thing about 2023 but at least go a little bit lighter on it i 2023 will always be I will remember is the last year I had with my first pet. But instead of thinking about the really sad bit at the very end, I will think about about two months before that, when for the first time, Amber and I actively tried to take her on a vacation with us. Oh boy. Because we were worried because she had been a little sick. And I think in retrospect, it was probably the beginning of the disease that wound up taking her. But we just thought it had been a little, you know, bad food and such. Amber and I had our own cabin at this little, like, campground up in rural Pennsylvania where Amber's dad owns one of these cabins. And then there are also rental cabins. So every year the whole family goes up there. He and his partner and a couple of people stay in his cabin because there's multiple bedrooms. And then he rents two or three other cabins for the rest of the family to go in. Amber and I had our own cabin. But what we didn't realize going up was that the only cabins that were allowed pets were the owned cabins, not the rental cabins. Uh... So we brought Bess thinking she could stay with us in the rental cabin. Nope. And she was so unutterably lost Amber wound up staying in that cabin alone, and I instead slept in the small bedroom in Amber's dad's cabin with Bess, who was so pissy about it. She was just, yeah, oh, every, the first night she was still sort of drugged up from the, the, the drugs we gave her to travel with her. The second night, oh, every half an hour, just 
waking up with her like looking me right in the face. You did this, asshole. And I would pet her and she would lay down for half an hour. And all of us were supposed to stay three nights and then Amber was going to stay an extra night or two and I had to come back for work. Yeah, I only stayed two nights. The third night, we like waited until like nine o'clock. Amber and her cousins went to see Barbie at the drive-in. And I just drove the three and a half hours home at nine o'clock at night because I could not stand another night of getting home and opening her carrier and her just bolting into the house and being like, yeah, I'm home. That's better. And just her curling up in bed with me that night and just purring and being so happy. And that, that, that is a good memory curled her and me just curled up and her being like, yeah, I'm home and I'm with my guy and I'm a happy, happy kitty. Cats are assholes, but they're our assholes. Yeah. Bess wasn't even so much an asshole as she was a queen and she knew it. (laughs) The drive home with her, her in the carrier in the front seat in the passenger side, like looking at me through the, the little grate, the entire way, every now and then it's like, come on, Bess, we'll be home soon. If I could trust you to not try to get on my lap while I was driving, I would let you out of the carrier and let you sit on the passenger seat. But I don't trust you to do that. That's how accidents happen. Exactly. You know what I didn't want this week? What's that? That would be another story of earth-shattering consequences. Of teams of heroes being taken over by malevolent forces of of strife and conflict. And you know what? I got three weird-ass Batman stories this week, and I'm so happy. Yep. So happy. This was a much smaller scale. Even the most surreal of these is a much more limited, much more... Batman scale story. Batman goes to Brazil and gets high for a little bit. That's about as weird as we got this week. And after many weeks of superheroics, it was a a nice change of pace. It was refreshing. It really was. So this week, we are looking at three short 90s inter-bat title crossovers. Back when there were, you know, two or three bat titles. And a crossover involving the Bat titles could be three or four parts across two books. It was a different time. Or three books if you're going to get fancy. Yeah, three books at the very end. That was a, that was a shocker when, when you got to that point. Our first story of the night is The Penguin Affair. This is from Batman Volume 1, numbers 448 to 449, and Detective Comics Volume 1, number 615. The writers are Marv Wolfman and Alan Grant. Pencils are by Jim Aparo, Norm Brayfogle, and Mark Bright. Inks by Mike DiCarlo, Steve Mitchell, and Randy Emberlin. Colors by Adrienne Roy. Letters by John Costanza and Todd Klein. And edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover date was June of 1990. Having discovered Harold Allnut and his amazing mechanical abilities, Penguin has convinced the savant to build him a machine that controls birds. Batman must track down Penguin in time to stop him from selling the device to the highest bidder and saving a soap star 
Cobblepot has become obsessed with from his talons. This is a cartoon-ass penguin plot right here. This is very much the 66-esque penguin. This is one of the last stories of the 66-esque penguin. I looked this up because I was curious. He will appear over the next four years, half a dozen times, mostly in like background and little shorts before in 94, Chuck Dixon turns him into the penguin we know now, the mob boss penguin. And it's the right choice for the character. There's even a line in here where Batman says to Tim Drake, Cobblepot's main fault is his ego. If he were able to get over himself and hire competent henchmen to pull off his schemes rather than try to do them himself, he would be a much bigger threat. And that's exactly what Penguin becomes a few years down the line. But here we have... And I I didn't dislike this story. I didn't dislike any of the stories tonight. Tonight's kind of kind of be tough because they're all from basically the same era. And if they have any faults, they're basically the same faults. But this is a real, real cartoony penguin. The plot, you know, about the birds is, you know, that's that's fine. Uh his designs on selling the ability to control birds as a super weapon. Uh, I don't know. But it's his delusional obsession with the soap star that just doesn't really seem like top flight penguin villainy. This period, we're in 1990. So we're four years out of year one. We are in a period where... It feels like a lot of three years, right? Because it's early 97 is year one. Dark Knight is 90 is 86. Year one is 87. So we're three years out of that, that sea change in the bat titles. And we're at a point where certain villains, the writers aren't entirely sure how to handle them because they feel very much like Silver Age villains. The three big examples of this are Penguin, Riddler, and Freeze. Penguin, at this point, as I, I mean, this is what Penguin is. There was a Penguin story a little before this in Detective 610 and 611, and then this. Riddler is pretty much off the board at this point. Denny O'Neill did a one-shot appearance of him in the question where he retires because he can't figure out how to live in this world of killers anymore he was just the thief and freeze was never a big deal until batman the animated series and in a story that is running parallel to one of tonight's stories freeze is killed off and then comes back from the dead around the time of Batman the Animated Series, when suddenly there's a little more cachet to the character. Joker Joker still works, because he's A, he's the Joker, but he was made into a serious threat. Two-Face works because they're 
was the established pathos and two faces scary catwoman was not as on the board as she was pre-crisis at this point she popped up occasionally and only sort of came back to the forefront around nightfall i don't think the writers knew precisely how to handle the big villains of the silver age anymore and so here they were trying to still do a sort of big kooky bird related penguin story while also giving him that that delusion and that gave him another level i don't think it's a level that worked we're gonna have to cover i think it's batman annual 11 it's an alan moore written penguin story from a little bit before this and i think this is drawing a bit on some of that but he is so recognizably still burgess meredith in a lot of this his driver is named lark he still is very much a bird themed supervillain and not a mobster do you think this batman annual 11 by alan moore is available on Comixology. Annuals are weird. A lot of annuals aren't. This one does not appear to be. I bet it's in a trade. I oh, bet... son of a son of a bitch. Not only is it Alan Moore, it's also Max Allen Collins. Maybe it's Alan Collins who writes, because it's a Penguin story and a Clayface story. Uh-huh. And I don't know which one writes which off the top of my head. I thought Moore wrote the Penguin story and maybe collins wrote the Clayface, but i might have them backwards i did indeed more wrote the Clayface. penguin was written by uh collins and does have norm art. i remember that alan moore part is collected in the dc universe stories of alan moore the penguin part is collected in the legends of the dark knight norm brayfogel volume one trade so to read the annual, we'd have to read it in two different places. <laughs> but it does exist. Both of them exist, just in different trades. Oh, oh DC. Just, oh, DC. It's a freaking comic by Alan Moore. You'd think that they would, you'd have easy access to it somewhere. But yes, this actual story. This is also, obviously, I think from the way I, I said it, but still, the issue where harold becomes a character in the bat family of books he had appeared once before this created by denny o'neill for the question and then wandered out of that book and shows up here and then uh, about a year or so later pops up again where he runs into actually into batman who takes him in so this begins him as a bat character and at what point does he die? Hush. Ah, of course. But I fucking hush. That has been. We have seen him, or we saw him at some point more recently because of continuity tangles. I think somebody kind of casually like, "Yeah, Harold's alive again." It's like, okay, great. They killed him in a crappy way, and I'm perfectly happy. If you kill a character in a crappy way, sort of hand wave it, and yeah, they're back. Great. We're also at the point where we're in between a lonely place of dying 
and identity crisis. This is the period where Tim is training to be Robin, but isn't actually Robin yet. Oh, and Batman has some interesting brooding of some spots of, well, eventually the universe is going to die. Huh. I wonder what that means. Yeah. I have no problem with Batman, you know, if he has to, you know, wait for evidence or for something like that to come around for him to go and meditate. But meditating on the heat death of the universe was a choice. Uh, somewhere right now, there is a sun going Nova and boiling people alive. Eh, <laughs> that's a thing. Sucks to be them. Just like it sucks to be the penguin. And we see all of the hallmarks of who Tim Drake is going to be. He's deducing, he's working the detective angles on some of this stuff. He comes up with the idea that eventually lets Batman track Penguin. And we see a lot of detecting in here. A lot of Batman trying to figure ways of finding the Penguin. And this is a perfectly good Batman story. And I think that's what we can say about pretty much everything tonight. These are all perfectly good Batman stories. That's absolutely right. Like my favorite tonight is my favorite just because I think it has some interesting philosophical questions that speak to 2023. But this by no means is bad. I think this is a very solid number two. Yeah. There's a great moment here where you see Penguin is playing chess over the internet with a dozen different people. And there's just the one that he's been playing with for years. And they used to exchange letters to PO boxes and now they're doing it over the internet and they don't know who they are. And of course it winds up that of course he's playing with Bruce and neither of them realize that they're playing each other. And you know, sometimes one wins, sometimes the other wins. And it's a, it's a great moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the birds as weapon of mass destruction is a bit much. It's very Hitchcocky, obviously, but it has some cool moments. There's some really neat visuals of Batman with the birds, fighting the birds, avoiding the birds. I like how Harold is treated here. And Penguin knows exactly the angle to to pull to get Harold on his side. But it also shows just what an elitist asshole Penguin is that's like, yes, we're both freaks. Repulsive thing. Kill you when I have the chance. Penguin will talk all he wants about him being an outcast and him being a freak, but he still believes he's an aristocrat. We don't have the Cobblepots as founders of Gotham stuff yet. That's not for years as backstory. Oh, that's such a good addition to the character. It really is. That is up there with the Alfred was Bruce's butler as a child as a change to a character, a retcon to their backstory that just makes the character infinitely better and more interesting in the mythos of Batman. Because making the Cobblepots the fallen Waynes just adds a whole other level to Penguin as a character. The whole Penguin's obsession with Heron, which of course, 
again, the bird theme is an odd note. And I don't know if it really helps the story any. I don't know why Grant and Wolfman felt like they needed that additional character beat for Penguin. Yeah, it's it's a story that doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, and it has a, at least one strange moment in that, like, we get this internal monologue from her. Like, she see, she's been kidnapped and she sees, oh, fuck, I got to play along with this guy or he's going to kill me. And then so she plays along at least a little bit. And then the very next time we see her, she's tied up. So like there's it's a bit of a jump cut. And so that moment was weird. But yeah, none of it felt integral to the story. Like it seems like there could have been a fun, zany, weird penguin story just about her. And then you had all of this other bird stuff on top of it. And it could have worked if at the very end of the story... Harold frees her and if there had been more interaction between her as the prisoner who knew she was a prisoner and Harold as the gentle soul who was helping her and who was kind to her in this terrifying situation throughout that might have helped both her and Harold's characters because Harold is just a plot device here you feel bad for harold but there's not a lot for him to do in the story no other than build the device and in the end he turns on penguin when he realizes that penguin isn't his friend when he happens to overhear penguin saying like oh i'm gonna kill him yeah it would have felt better if there that some of that page space could have been given to harold or you could have used Harold and Sherry, the actress's real name, interacting with each other to develop both of their characters more. And this comes to something I'm sure we've talked about before, but basic storytelling beats in, in a medium like wrestling. I mean, yeah, and the equivalent here is it's Harold had a face turn, right? He turned on the penguin. And you always want to give a heel a good reason for turning face. A good reason would be them coming to the realization, oh, I have been doing wrong. I need to not do wrong. I need to do right. Simply understanding, oh, shit, Penguin's about to get me. I better stop him. It's not exactly the strongest basis for a face turn for Harold. Throughout, Penguin is going out of his way to make it look like all he's doing is stealing from the rich elites who oppress people like them. Harold throughout this doesn't realize that Penguin is using his invention as a weapon of terrorism. And he he always gets him out of the room before he's doing that. Harold is more a dupe than anything else. And it might have been something interesting if Harold had been angry enough to make the device for Penguin as a weapon. But that is out of Harold's character from both that first question story and everything we know about him after. Despite all of the ways the world has shit on him, Harold is always looking at the better parts of people's natures, which is both sweet and sad. And that's a good thing about Harold. 
It's what makes his betrayal of Batman in Hush so dumb. It's so dumb I've forgotten it. Yeah, that he betrays Batman so Hush can fix his hunched back and his vocal cords so he can, you know, speak and walk without the, the hunched back. Which is, again, Tommy Elliott, master surgeon at anything. He's not just a brain surgeon, which is what he is at the beginning, but he can also, he's also a cardiac surgeon and a plastic surgeon and all these other things. Uh, you about ready to put this one to bed, Matt? I think I am. On that note of agreement, it's time about the Penguin Affair on the big board. Wah, wah. We are at 354 stories on the big board. Damn. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one. The story where Tim Drake officially takes up the mantle of Robin. And still, at a family-friendly 69, it's Batman and Robin and Howard. At 100 is Choices or Fears, the first Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. Fears if you're nasty. (laughs) At 150 is Archie meets Batman 66. At 200 is I Am Batman Begins. At 250 is The Cat, the first appearance of Catwoman. At 300 is The Batman Castle of the Bat Elseworlds. And at 354, it's Curse of the White Knight. Boo! Uh, So as I was saying, I think we're going to be in a fairly tight range tonight. I don't think these stories are significantly worse or better than each other. Subjectively, I have this ranked number two, but really just for no big, big reasons. I, let's see, what are we, 354 or so? I mean, I I think these are top 200. Yeah, I think we're we're right in the middle of the list, like right in the heart of the list, somewhere between 150 and 200. I think I would take all of these over I Am Batman Begins, for instance. While that is trying to say more, the art there is so inconsistent and abysmal. The art on all of these, by the way, is going to be mostly Norm Brayfogle and Jim Aparo who we've talked about on this show countless times because they've both done so many Batman stories and they're the prototypical Batman artists of the late 80s and early 90s. You know, I don't know which story we had that was back-to-back Bray Fogle and Arpaio, but I I happen to prefer Arpaio. I thought that was interesting to see them back-to-back and I I really like these inks here. Like They're so sharp and clear and like this is some good stuff. Idiot Root goes back and forth, back and forth. And I mean, Aparo, when you look, I mean, he was doing Batman consistently since the 70s. He did Brave and the Bold. Then he did the early issues of Batman and the Outsiders. And then he was on Batman or Detective for years. Uh, No retirement in comics. Nope. Something comparable, a little earlier, uh, the Mud Pack. The, the four clay faces at 192. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I would say I would I would put this story over that, but 
Uh, I might not necessarily put idiot root over that. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you on that. I was so let let's say so we're we're above that. What about Nightmare in Crimson? The th- the that story where Batman gets turned into a vampire with the the monk, the middle monk story. That's a good question. Probably better. Probably. I don't think it's going much higher than that. Because I don't think it's better than that Joe Potato annual. I was the love slave of a plant-based killer at 171. No, no, absolutely not. Refresh me on 176, Batman annual number one. That's the Christmas annual from a few weeks ago. The one that has the really good Ace story, the really good Batman has the quiet night with the acrobats, the middling Harley story, the not great Prime Minister Blizzard and that weird scarecrow story at the end. Wildly inconsistent. How would you say 174? Or excuse me, excuse me. I'm, the, the the numbers they they escape me right now. The new 176. So right above that and right under Batman 66 meets Steed and Mrs. Peel. Sounds good to me fun little personal fact this is four months into when i started reading comics this is the first time i actually had a story that i had to follow from one title to another ah. it was like I, I read the issue of batman because batman was the title i was reading and it was like wait continue in detective comics okay and they they had me and they have not let me go since Our second story of the night is The Idiot Root. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 472 to 473, and Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 639 to 640. The writer is Peter Milligan, with pencils by Norm Brayfogel and Jim Aparo, inks by Norm Brayfogel and and Mike DiCarlo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein and John Costanza, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Kelly Puckett. The cover dates are December of 91 to January of 92. An escaped villain has brought Batman to Rio de Janeiro, but what he discovers there is far more sinister. A new drug has left people as wandering zombies in the street, and the power behind it is something far more sinister and supernatural. Just as a little statement, so these stories are... 20-something issues later from where we just were. And the artists are pretty much the same. Can you think of a time when in the past number of years we had an artist stick with a book for two plus years? And we're in the middle of these guys' runs. Yes, they've shifted from what title they're doing. Like, Brayfogle went from Detective to Batman, and Aparo went from Batman to Detective. And then eventually, Aparo will go back to Batman, and Brayfogle will move over to Shadow. But to stick with the character, even if you're kind of moving around within their family of books for three, four, five years, is unheard of. has to be the last. Yeah, Jorge Jimenez has been on for a while, but he disappears for whole arcs. 
And I mean, hey, I, that's not a, a statement against him. His work is great and he goes off to do, you know, creator owned work or other stuff. So it's not like uh, I'm shitting on him or what he does, but that level of consistency is not something we see in modern comics. It's just, it's no. not the way the industry works anymore. Mm-mm. Too much sausage being made. Especially with uh, you know books that uh, double ship, it just can't be done. Yeah. So this one is the weird one of the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This starts with uh, a story about Queen of Hearts and ends with Batman and uh, you know Zombie Land. It's an interesting little story. I I love how this villain works. The the idiot is both drug-based and an amalgamations of people with with personality disorders and he springs forth as a character in, in the dream world and then he eats enough brains to become real until he's not real anymore. That's all very Peter Milligan. I mean, we've read a little bit of Milligan. He was Golem of Gotham. Uh, I'm trying to think if we've read any other Milligan aside from Golem of Gotham. While Matt is looking that up, I will break down how this this guy works, basically. So you take this this idiot route, and you are transported to the, the idiot realm. And when you are in the idiot realm, you are susceptible to an attack from the idiot man. And what he does is he plants a deliciously weird little thought in your brain, and then he eats your brain. Um, It reminded me of a a Lewis Black joke from years and years and years ago. If it weren't for my horse, horse. I wouldn't have spent that four years in college. Lewis Black has many, many great jokes that one is my favorite if it weren't for my horse if it weren't for my horse you can't you can't stop thinking about it yes and the only other thing we've done by milligan is he wrote a couple of the parts of resurrection of rachel ghoul which was very much paycheck work making the sausage but not that it's batman work but he wrote a book called shade the changing man a vertigo title where Shade comes from the realm of madness. He was an earlier Steve Ditko creation, but he was one of those like weird, obscure DC characters that got shifted over to Vertigo or proto-Vertigo. And he fights the American scream, this sort of embodiment of all the bad in America. All the bad that we saw in America in the early 90s, which is a lot of the bad we still see in America to this day. But still, he likes high concept. He's the guy who turned X-Force from the Rob Liefeld stuff, which changed a lot over the years. But he's the one who made that the reality show superhero comic. Milligan loves high concept. And this is a pretty high concept story. Yeah. And, you know, the Queen of Hearts is herself not a bad villain. And it's always fascinating to me to see someone create an interesting character that's there as a throwaway where you sit back and it's like you could have done any number of stories about this person who she was a fairly standard thief criminal with her partner and then her partner gets a bad batch of drugs ods and now goes around and cuts the hearts out of drug dealers 
like you sit back like there's there's story potential for that character but no we're creating her just so she's the reason to get batman down to rio and then is one of the idiots victims and then i presume that's it for her that's it never shows up again still wandering the streets of rio with with all of the other people that the idiot ate their brains Oh, and it and it turns out he's metaphorically eating brains because part of the person who created him had fantasies about really eating brains. That's the thing in this story I wish had had a little more time to percolate. That we only get this moment where Batman realizes, ah, what I need to do is figure out the psychoses of each of the people who were sort of merged to become the idiot to figure out how to defeat him at the very last part of these four issues. And it feels like it makes that final defeat feel maybe not unearned, but a little pat. And if there had been more buildup to that, it is smartly done that the third part when Batman is in the idiot's realm and is in a a version of the rainforest, the missing bit, the thing that the idiot fears is subtly in there. But I would have liked a little more of that background to make that ending feel more earned or at least a better payoff. Why is the jungle so quiet? Why does it feel so strange? It's a nice little bit of foreshadowing But we'll say it, you know, spoilers for a 30-year-old story. Yeah, the idiot is afraid of birds because one of the the dominant personality was a chef, a poultry chef. And as his paranoia developed, he felt like the birds were always watching him and waiting to take revenge. Well, first of all, birds aren't real. And second, the birds are watching, always. But it would have been easy enough to, in one of the first couple of scenes, when Batman is flitting in and out of the idiot zone, because he's been exposed to some of this drug, for a bird to fly by and the idiot to flinch. Or some way to foreshadow that even a little bit earlier. Because, yeah, it is cleverly done in that bit in the jungle, but it felt like there could have been more. And it... The twist, and I guess that was issue three or four, that you think that Batman's won. You think the idiot has been defeated. And then Batman's, oh no, Aztec warriors are paddling blue Cadillacs down the Amazon. Oh no, I'm still in the idiot realm. That's a great a great splash page and a great visual of the rowing down the, the river and the, the Cadillacs. Again, that's that idiot idea in his head. Also, in the last part, when the idiot has manifested in the real world, he now also has idiot breath and can basically breathe the hallucinogen. Again, something that I would have liked a little foreshadowing of, but granted, he doesn't manifest in the real world until the last issue, so that would have been harder to do. I'm picking at nits here because this is a very competently done story. I won't deny that it is not memorable because it literally, I remembered this story, which is why I was like, let's do this one. Because I remember, I will never forget the idiot 
manifesting in the real world for the first time and then how he travels from body to body and how he leaves those bodies. It's not something you forget as he literally makes their heads explode and pops out of them, like Athena popping out of Zeus's head, only he doesn't leave the heads behind. No, no. The old pink mist. The other thing, and this this is problematic, but it's one of those things that it's problematic, but so is every other comic of this period. The Idiot was created by a scientist called um, Crosby. And Crosby has an assistant, someone he sort of grabbed, took off the street, and he's a hustler, and now he's been working for him named Zeno. And it takes two or three parts before it's very clear that Zeno is an indigenous person of the area around Rio. He is colored white. Yes, I noticed that. It is not good. And, I mean, this is a pretty common problem. The coloring of people of color in this story is not great. But it's one of these things where it feels like it's something that needs to be addressed, but it was so consistent across all comics of this period. It's something we can't forget, but it's not something that I can particularly attack this story for it's something that was a systemic problem in comics coloring in any point before i think even the 90s might be generous saying it was when that started to be fixed it remains a problem today with characters being whitewashed but here it's very obvious that this is a an indigenous character who is colored white they didn't even try Yeah, it was just like, okay, he's a main character, so we're just going to color him white because it's easier than trying to figure out the proper skin tone for this character. I like how the story gets surreal in places without ever letting that surreality go so far as to throw you out of the story. It's very easy for someone to be like, yeah, this is going to be weird. And then it's just like, this doesn't feel like the same story anymore. Yeah, I I could have used a little more of Batman battling in the in the idiot realm. Yeah, it might not take it far enough. That's I, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. It's, I think it's trying to tread a line and it treads it a little more safely yeah. than it needed to. I like the moments where where Batman also talks about how he doesn't want to have to take this idiot route. That's not what he does. He just want to alter his perception, but sometimes you just need to. And how the joke is like, it's supposed to be 30 seconds. It's been at least 50. Well, you must have a strong constitution. And then he starts to get... The world starts to melt. That was a great panel, by the way. Yeah. I like the... The bits here with the local, I guess he's a, a police captain, maybe a, a chief or a commissioner, but the, he's never given a rank who doesn't want vigilantes in his city. 
I like when Batman's in a city and he has to be reminded this isn't Gotham. People aren't going to just be like, sure, Batman, come on in. It's the difference between Batman and Superman. And he was drawn in such a way that you could imagine him being a contemporary of Gordon and like getting along with Gordon. Two men of principle having a different view on Batman. Yeah, it's easy when it's a crooked cop. But this guy wasn't. This guy just truly believed that you don't want vigilantes in your city. I enjoyed this story. Fun final note. This story took place contemporaneous to Tim Drake's second Robin miniseries. Where Find out what's been going on in Gotham in Robin 2. Yeah, that was Tim's first encounter with the Joker. And Bruce is in Rio while the Joker goes on a rampage. That's actually the story where uh, Mr. Freeze dies because Joker gets out of Arkham and found out that Freeze has stolen his gang. And this is when Freeze was like a C-list villain. So it doesn't end well for Freeze in that story. Huh. Someday we'll, we'll maybe hit those three Robin miniseries, Dixon and Lyle. This is, is not at all related to what we need to be doing here at this point. As Matt draws this tangent to a close, that means it's time to put Idiot Root on the big board! We said it probably doesn't go above Mud Pack at 193. Yes. But I still think we might be between 193 and 200. Yeah. I would put this above, certainly, Injustice uh, at 199. While there are some things that I wish had been expanded on more, it's not as weirdly busy as Blind Justice at 198. That's that story with the scientist who is creating brain-hopping technology, gets psychic powers. Bruce Wayne is believed to be a communist spy. There's the girl who Bruce falls in love with. It's a whole lot of ideas crammed into three issues, and none of them really get as developed as they should. Okay, so 196, Wayne Manor, Anatomy of a Murder. That's the story where they find the bones down in the basement of Wayne Manor and features the second appearance of Solomon Wayne, a character whose first appearance we'll be covering in a minute. Aha! I like that story in theory more than I like it in practice because Mm -hmm. it winds up falling kind of flat and especially from 2023 looking back at it, has some real white savior issues in it that were less of a concern in the mid nineties. But now we look at, and it's like, that could be better. Uh, you want to say new one ninety six then? Yeah. New one ninety six. And our final story of the night is destroyer. This is Batman volume one, number four seventy four. Batman legends of the dark Knight, number 27. And Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 641. The writers are Alan Grant and Denny O'Neill. The pencils are by Norm Brayfogle, Chris Spruce, and Jim Aparo. Inks by Brayfogle, Bruce D. Patterson, and Mike DiCarlo. 
Colors by Adrian Roy and Steve Olaf. Letters by Todd Klein and John Costanza. And edited by Denny O'Neill, Kelly Puckett, and Archie Goodwin. The cover date is February of 1992. A mad bomber is blowing up buildings all over Gotham City. As Batman investigates, he finds connections to the architectural history of the city and his own ancestors. So we are literally moving to the next issue of each of these books, which I had completely forgotten when I put these together. And then we're like, oh, right, this is this is right following up on that. Uh, a couple of fun historical notes. This is the first time Legends of the Dark Knight tied directly in with the rest of the bat line for the first 26 issues. It had all been year one era stories. And the important thing here is this is the story that brought the architecture of the Burton movies, those Anton first weird gothic looking designs to the comics. This is the story that gave Gotham a distinct look versus just being any old city. Sadly, the issue of Legends of the Dark Knight, when it is reprinted, removes the Anton First designs that was in the floppy. Bonus Gotham City Visions by Anton First. Issue includes a false newspaper article and a text history of Gotham City titled From Handcarts and Hellholes, A Brief History of Gotham City by Aristotle Roeder, who is a character from The Question and includes concept drawings of old Gotham illustrated by Nigel Phelps and Anton First. But that stuff is not in the digital reprint. That is what makes this little three-part story actually significant versus it just being something like Idiot Root or Penguin Affair. They're fine stories, but they're not particularly significant. This actually does have a historical significance to the Batman titles as a whole. It's around this time that I think DC starts wanting to make all of those fictional cities a little bit more distinct. Because otherwise, before this, Gotham, Metropolis, all of them, they were all just New York, just without being called New York. Here, Gotham gets that architecture. Eventually, Metropolis will start being more of a sci-fi city. Keystone becomes a steel town. It's a way to make that world fuller. So uh, as you were saying all those good things, I'm distracted looking up Gotham City Visions. It's a total of seven pages. Oh, it's more than I recall. It's the newspaper article, five drawings from first, and then just a page that explains what the drawings were. Easy to find online. I know eventually there is something, it's maybe in the letters page later on about Anton first, because he, I believe, took his own life. And he died young. Yeah, he took his own life in 1991. So I remember reading about that in the back of some Batman comic or another. And I guess it wasn't in there, but it would have been an interesting thing. And I, I don't see why they didn't include it in this comic. This design of Gotham was used prominently until the earthquake when most of Gotham had to be rebuilt. But even then, it's kept 
some of that gothic look to it. I like this story the most tonight because in this hellhole that we find ourselves in, this terrible moment of 2023 and into 2024, architecture has more prominently taken on a political tone. And it's, I suppose it's always been political, but you had this whole controversy in the Trump administration about Oh, you know, I, I'm I'm the big wet president boy. I want all our federal buildings to be, you know, the classic federal style. And da, 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 architecture somehow becoming a stand-in for uh, racism and white supremacy. And Destroyer here, while guided by you know his delusions, his thinking is more or less the same that. My vision is the one true proper vision and that anything else is a distraction, is an adulteration of the way that I see the world. And so I think his delusions spoke very well to the delusions that we see in people who are so angry that the world doesn't look the way that they want it to look. I had not thought of it in that current political context. It is a really interesting way to view it, and I like that. The only thing here is I don't necessarily agree with him in that I don't think you should be blowing up buildings to expose this architecture, but the stuff designed by Cyrus Pinckney, who's the architect, is so much more interesting looking than all of the other buildings that are winding up being destroyed that are all these blocky, very boring looking buildings and these Pinckney buildings are just so beautiful. And I know, you know, people in the comic argue how ugly they are. It's like, really? I don't see them as ugly. And it's because again, this, when you think about it, this was 19 late 91 cover dated early 92. And it was used through 98. This is the Gotham that I grew up looking at. This is the Gotham that I have such an affection for from that, period. So I have a soft spot for it. But he is flat out not in his right mind. And the blowing up these buildings, mostly of which are condemned buildings, to expose these older buildings, it's not good. And he winds up escalating to the point that he's blowing up occupied buildings. He has to be, though. Uh, the world's first Navy SEAL who goes on to become an architect. Yeah. Or was he an architect and became <laughs> a Navy SEAL? One way or the other, it's an interesting career path. That it is. But I suppose if Pat Tillman can play football and then go into special forces, anything's possible. Yes. And we do get a couple pages that are these flashbacks to Cyrus Pinckney the architect who was working with Judge Solomon Wayne, who's the one who was the, the first Wayne to come to Gotham in this iteration. The timeline has, of course, shifted to the point of the Waynes were there at the founding of the city. Here they talk about Solomon coming from Boston. From Boston. But I would... Love a miniseries of Judge Solomon Wayne, not quite frontier judge, but you know, 
This guy was a hanging judge. Even though he had so, some... so let me let me explain just a, a quick thing here to the the editors, the writers. Uh, Solomon Wayne has the Bible in one hand. Perfectly good. The Bible exists. Many different versions of the Bible exist. In his other hand, he has a book simply titled The Law. The Law does not exist in the one book. You could have the codes of Gotham, right? You could have the state statutes in which Gotham exists. Uh, you could have any number of different uh, treatises, but you're never going to have a book, The Law. I have an answer to this. I think he had that printed up himself. It, it's blank <laughs> pages inside. It's just the principle that he can stand around and pontificate holding these two books. Judging by what we saw of Judge Solomon Wayne, he was just enough of a big man to have done that. Now, if there was a statue of Solomon Wayne, I'd absolutely give it to you. The Bible in one hand and the law in the others, because the, the, the law is certainly symbolic there. Although when Solomon beats another man with the book, it's uh, it's awful, uh, awful real there. But yeah, now, nah, no, you got to beat him with something else. The second part has a thanks in the credits to a Beth Reuter who a quick Google search indicates that was uh, one of Denny O'Neill's stepdaughters. So I don't know if she might have been an architecture person who might have helped him with some of the architecture talk in that issue. But yes, there was a special thanks to one of Denny O'Neill's stepdaughters in part two. Ah, very nice. I'm curious about it. There's a particular sequence in that second issue where... Bruce is in the Wayne Tech or Wayne Foundation building. They seem to use them interchangeably and they're not necessarily interchangeable because Wayne Tech is the, the corporation and the Wayne Foundation is the charitable wing. They're not the same thing, but, you know, whatever. That building is about to be blown up. Bruce realizes it. He winds up going down into the reinforced bunker that has the servers and things in it he winds up then jury rigging a way to communicate to get out gets out he's in his tidy whities but then when he gordon's like well, what were you doing oh i was looking for a refrigerator to put this cheese in and you use more code i did i don't even remember doing that does that take the fop bruce wayne a little too far for you or is that still within that character that he's playing? Oh, oh, I, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I like, Bruce Wayne cannot appear to be too resourceful. And that's what Gordon's you know question is. Like, I use Morse code? What? And then, like, it was just great how Bruce immediately shook it off. I, what? I did? Huh? Good for me. Yeah. I, I think you could have been a little bit... Well, you certainly, it couldn't have been Bruce's banging and it just happens to be Morse code because that's not believable. But, you know, he could certainly, if he would have just done shaving a haircut, two bits, shaving a haircut, two bits, like they would have realized that somebody was in there and it wasn't just random banging. That could have worked. 
but what they did was funny so i'll take it i'm also willing to accept that he's doing it in front of gordon which uh, listen, i've said it once on the show i've said it a hundred times gordon knows bruce knows gordon knows but they constantly are giving each other plausible deniability on the knowing here here's the question though we can agree and, and this was the moment that crystallized it for me we can agree at the end of jim gordon's life or at the end of his tenure as police commissioner he knows he's figured it out year one and i'm, I'm not saying that the story is year one obviously but does he know year one at what point does gordon know we know in year one he's a suspect because that's why Gordon and Essen go to Wayne Manor. And at the end of this story, Essen still suspects he's Batman. And Alfred is fortunately there to impersonate him on the phone when Sarah yeah, calls the manor. <laughs> we know Gordon knows by his retirement after Officer Down. There's a scene in his retirement party where it's 100% obvious that Gordon knows because he sees Bruce acting like Bruce Wayne and he's got this knowing little smile on his face. And I think the narration is specifically like Sasha Bordeaux, who's narrating, observes something about the way Gordon is looking at Bruce with this knowing smile that he knows something that she doesn't. And as we get towards the end of No Man's Land, I have a firm belief in the issue where Jim and Batman bury the hatchet. Even though it's not made clear, Gordon knows by that point. I suspect he might not know now, but I think if there was any time where you could meet like, yeah, he put it together, it might be Nightfall. Bruce Wayne disappearing a new Batman coming in, Bruce Wayne coming back, the original Batman showing back up. Gordon's a detective. I think Gordon could have put two and two together at that point if there was any doubt in his mind. And that's when he knew for sure. But I think he could have figured it out at any point in there. Because, I mean, was it was it Injustice? Where he's like, yeah, I knew. I knew all along. Yeah. In the main continuity, he found Barbara's costume. We'd have to read it. It's a story where he he reveals to him in his own monologue that he knew she was Batgirl in a story from Batman Chronicles number one. What I can't remember is if he found that costume while taking care of her after killing Joke or if it was even before that. There also might be some connections there. Barbara was Batgirl. She was spending time with Dick Grayson, who's the right age. And if Dick Grayson was, then that means Batman is, ah. But the first time that it is, you know, almost hit you over the head with, made clear that Gordon knows, is in like 2001. 2002 somewhere around there so we're still in the period where there's a distinct possibility that jim doesn't know but i think bruce would always play it somewhat cool around jim because jim could figure it out and i think bruce knows that because he's a good cop that he is 
our uh, mad bomber, our destroyer here, Sinclair, you do feel maybe not bad for him at the end because he has killed a bunch of people. But the moment where they've lured him into one of these buildings with the promise of it being destroyed and the wrecking ball hitting and him actually standing in front of the wrecking ball and shooting at it before it hits and maybe kills him. It's not clear if that killed him or if he just is all busted up. He wasn't going out in a body bag. So I'm going to say that he was alive. Never appears again, which is, again, kind of a shame because I think there is potential for this architecture-obsessed supervillain. The Destroyer and the Architect teaming up for some story. And I guess this is interesting because this would mean Pinckney designs these buildings. And then a generation later, you've got the Gates brothers designing the next set of buildings, which are in similar style to the Pinckney buildings, but taller. None of these are skyscrapers. You think they're mostly, maybe at the most, 10-story buildings? Yeah, a police headquarters would not be that big. The tower that becomes the new Wayne Tower is probably the tallest. And the top of it seems more of a spire than anything else, like a built, you know, just bit to make it taller and more phallic. Which, you know, hey, architecture, phallic buildings, that's what they do. Yeah, I would um, I would bring back the Destroyer and I would make him the guardian of Confederate memorials. Like, you know, Gotham has some kind of racist ass Confederate monument that the people vote to take out and Destroyer's like, no, you will leave this alone. It will stay here. There's some really nice art in this book. There's a great Brayfogle splash of Batman swinging across the rooftops of Gotham. There's a beautiful Aparo two-page spread of the somewhat restored old Gotham in the last issue. And this is pretty early in Chris Spruce's career. I didn't realize that what made him break out was Tom Strong with Alan Moore in 99. Like he had plenty of work before that, but he was just sort of a workhorse and only became a big name at that point. And his his style is still very much what it is. I mean, it's still evolving at this point, but he does a really nice job with, a lot of the, the, they all three do a really good job with the architecture here, with bringing those first designs into the comics. Interesting book. Very nice visuals. Yes. I think I'm about ready. Oh, uh, that means it's time to put Destroyer on the big board. So I agree, this is the number one story of the night. So Penguin Affairs at 176. 150. Do we think this is above Archie meets Batman 66? If it's above Archie meets Batman 66, then it goes right up against the Crisis of Infinite Scoobies at 149. I don't think we're up there. 
No, I think it's a little below that. I'm thinking, okay, well, oh, here we go. Well, here's a question. Oh, oh. 161, Gates of Gotham. Definitely more interesting than Gates of Gotham. I did not care about those Gates brothers by the end of that book. So above that is Blue Wall. Is this better than Blue Wall? Blue Wall has more to say, but Blue Wall does have all those weird pacing problems. As does the one right above that, the first appearance of Jason Todd and Killer Croc, which meanders so much over the course of six issues that probably could have been easily condensed down into four if i had to pick a number i'd probably say 161 above gates of gotham below blue wall i'm good with that and now we have a little pocket of architecture-based stories if i had a nickel for every architecture-based batman story i'd have two nickels not a lot but it's weird that there's two And that does it for tonight. Next week, we've got one final Patreon request for a little bit. And this one is from Abigail Hartbaum. And this time it is stories around and about the wedding that did not happen. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sregioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorney! For their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlas 1013 And I'm at Will Devin. I'm also never leaving Twitter, but I'm out for tonight. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.